Ladies and gentlemen, this is radio station KFQD in Anchorage, Alaska, returning to the air after a technical failure of approximately 18 minutes. KFQD radio operates on an assigned carrier frequency of 730 kilocycles, with our power presently reduced to 5,000 watts. Our studios and transmitter are located in the Turnigan area on Point Warrensoff in Anchorage, Alaska. And while it isn't completely clear what has happened here in the All-America City, or for that matter, elsewhere in the 49th state, apparently we have been dealt a severe blow at the hands of an awesome earthquake, and possibly parts of our city are heavily damaged beyond repair. Our first effort will be to try and establish some form of emergency communications with civil defense, since it seems power and other facilities appear to be non-existent at this time. Please inform your friends and who either have portable radios or access to a car radio to stand by for the first possible contact we can make with the emergency communication facilities. For the next few moments, we will transmit music for the purpose of realigning our broadcast gear. Please stand by. Yes, indeed, dear friends. It is the 1964 Earthquake Edition of Alley Audio Vision, a series of talks with architect and 1960s-70s anchored design guru Ralph Alley, Clark Yarrington Frame Residential Design, your host for this precious time warp. Ralph had been busy shaking up the city's design community for five years. One spring evening, it shook back. We were talking last time about the Christmas party, and Dan, who uh, is the engineer and entrepreneurial, uh, had mentioned that the three of us should either buy a large house or lease one. And we thought about it, but didn't get serious. And uh, of course, Frank was building a law practice which consumed him. And I still had an eight to five job, but I had these design projects on the side, and I was really busy. Dan works eight to five, and uh, <clears throat> he has all kinds of time after that to look for houses. And we didn't know it, but he was hunting one. And he came in one day and said he found a house for us, and uh, he told us about it, and we trusted him. We signed a lease, and <laughs> That was, uh, you know, Dan's the same one who wanted us to go to Homer and buy the 70 acres. So maybe we should have done it. But this was a beginning of another beginning. And Dan drives Frank and I over to the house. And it's a furnished house. But the discovery of it, it was a bright blue house on a corner. And the inside had been done by some designer. It was over-decorated. And uh, it was when we discovered that Dan is clinically colorblind and he only sees in playful grays, but we've signed the lease and it was now really late. <laughs> so anyway, that was the beginning. I've worked with so many architects that are colorblind. <laughs> it's a hilarious situation. You know, most of them um, don't want to talk about it much or, or even admit there's a problem, but it, it leads to all sorts of uh, hilarious uh, episodes. Well, maybe this interior designer was colorblind as well because uh, 
uh, it was kind of an amazing color scheme inside. But the house itself had this high and wide kind of a lean-to carport one side. It's kind of stylish and you walk under that to the front door and plus your car was there. There was a place for uh, firewood to be undercover and there was a tool shed at the end. But it was on one side attached to the house going up to the front door but on the other side it was just a couple of posts holding it up. And in the house the entryway, fairly good size, was white tiles and it kind of went straight on into a family room and off that was a kitchen and then going back to the entry you'd go down these steps into a sunken living room and this is where you'd start sucking air if you saw the um, <laughs> saw the scheme but it was a deep lavender shag carpet in a sunken living room and a lavender wall backed it up on one side and opposite that was a painted white brick wall which calmed the room down but it had nice furnishings in it but they were all upholstered in different fabrics and uh, some were deep purple some were green some were white or white and green and purple <laughs> and it was amazing <laughs> to see so dan um, didn't notice any of that when he was walking through that, that it was no. a little discordant and clashing <laughs> He just thought it it was just so nice and cushy and and the gals that we went with at that time called it the Fru Fru House and uh, that was always kind of a a joke amongst us, but uh, the kitchen was large. It has a peninsula kitchen. It had a charcoal uh, broiler grill in it and uh, well equipped and uh, and across the living room there were more steps back up into a bedroom wing and uh, there was a bedroom which was designated for me because it had a place for a drafting table and it had a niche off to one side with built-in bunk beds and uh, and the walls were covered with grass cloth and uh, there were jungle animal prints all over everything and on the walls were all these uh, African masks and it was not exactly my kind of thing but uh, it was home now <laughs> and the other room was large too it had uh, uh, twin beds and twin closets and the bathroom was huge except it was all black uh, all the fixtures were black uh, tiles floor walls uh, it I think it was maybe designed for a bachelor or a single woman or something, but it was uh, pretty cavernous in there for a bathroom. But uh, it it worked. We had showers and baths and uh, all the accoutrements that uh, uh, we all needed, and it, it worked. We moved in. The whole thing and... sounds really beautiful, I gotta say. I always wanted to live on a corner lot, and it is the house at tri-level? No, it just, it was a single story home but it had the sunken living room and that was quite large. The, that's the thing that impressed Dan, this big fireplace on one side and the whole wall was painted white brick and that was that part I really liked. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it sounds great. And you know, if, any, if anybody took exception to the decor, you could always just say, ah, it's not ours, you know, we're just running this place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> we moved out 
of that apartment, or I did, it was my apartment, but uh, you remember Frank was the interloper and he lived there for two years, sleeping on the living room floor. On uh, Saturday, it was February the 29th in 1964, on leap year day, we moved out of there and moved into the Frufru house. That was kind of a major undertaking that weekend. And I always had a little regret leaving that apartment because it it was so instrumental in kind of launching me into architecture. Uh, that was where I met Verge and Joy at that dinner party that the Gibbonese threw. And I, I grew up there. I became I became more of an adult from being a kid out of college. and And I grew in architecture too. And I did have a sadness about leaving. Yeah, no doubt. And the building it was in was pretty unique too. You, you know, it wasn't it wasn't your your style either. I'm not sure what style that was. It was kind of like it was a, kind of quasi Tudor, I think. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It was a mock Tudor style. It, you know, it it, it had a, a presence. I saw some um, on one of the previous episode pages. We put up a picture of it that was taken in the 30s and. Was a little more like a standalone uh, thing then, and then later, by the time you lived there, it sort of started to blend into the cityscape more. But it was definitely, you know, never never been anything like that here before or since. It was an Anchorage hallmark for downtown, I believe. That's the pictures they always took. Uh, was that building? We kind of always shared Sunday dinners with these gals that we went with. And by the way, we were talking about that. Christmas party, there's something I wanted to point out to you, and I haven't had a chance, but in those photographs that are you included in the last um, uh, podcast, you'll notice a guy sitting against a wall in a dark blue sweater eating, and that is Alan Merson, and he's the kid from New Jersey who had the uh, Piper Aztec, the twin-engine plane he bought, and uh, the gal he married after that party, lived with the gals that we went with in the same house. And that's how come he was there that Christmas. That was a guy who took you on a flight to look at his lot up on Upper Hillside that he didn't end up building anything on. Yeah, that's the one. But I always thought he was such an interesting fellow because it's uh, rare you meet people that had twin-engine airplanes that you were your age. <laughs> but we would always have... Uh, Sunday dinner together, and that continued on in the Fru-Fru house. So these gals would come over, and three of us guys and three gals would kind of pool our meals and cook. And uh, this one particular, we, I don't know, there were about three times we did this, but this particular Saturday or Sunday, uh, Frank just kind of stayed in the living room. We left him alone. He's a devout Catholic. I think that we covered that out in the plane crash, and uh, it was uh, Palm Sunday, so we just kind of felt he wanted to be by himself. So we were on the kitchen really busy with our kitchen duty, and um, we heard Frank yelling. It was loud, and we just dropped everything, pots, pans, all the duty we're doing out there, and we went uh, around the walls, down the steps, into the living room where he was. And, Frank was sitting on a wingback chair there with 
eyes open and fixed straight ahead. And we were so curious. We all, through that curiosity, our presences were in a circle around him. And he, he just appeared like he was in a trance. And he doesn't even acknowledge us. We just looked at him and he uh, stands staring at him. And we were puzzled. But Frank stays motionless and his eyes were directed straight at the white brick, not even looking at it. And I couldn't remember that's how he was out on the, when we crashed out on that plane side. He kind of tuned in for a while to somewhere else, some other, as if he was getting messages. And, and strange as that may seem, our rescue happened pretty much like he said it was going to, and that we would be rescued. And it helped me keep my sanity and knowing that we we're going to survive. But this time, his face looks really tight, grim, and it's uneasy looking. And when you see somebody like that, you just hope that nothing terrible is happening to him. There was this kind of dire look on his face. And uh, it's, this was, you know, March 22nd of a brand new year. And you kind of hope that good things are going to come. But we all listened very hard in parody with Frank's strong gaze. And his words started cutting through uneasy. And they were clear, eyes fixed at nothing. And this is what he said. I don't know what and I don't know when. What I can know is something is to happen that will change our lives. And that was Sunday evening. And we went on with our work. Dan and I went on to our jobs and... We had made a pact because eight to five jobs, and you know this too, but uh, sitting, drafting, or working, and your middle gets thicker and your muscles get thin, and we decided we're going to start exercising every Friday. Great idea. Huh? It is. <clears throat> you walk your dog all the time, so. Oh, yeah. Help. The dog is a, a lifeline for me, you know. Even even a little bit of activity is better than none at all, for the reasons you uh, cite. Yeah. Well, we decided to exercise every Friday evening, come hell or high water, which almost <laughs> came true. But if you remember, Ray saw me in the early days. Uh, uh, he was another guy whose wife left for Anaheim, and he left me this architecture work, which I did. He set up a drafting table in the L Street apartments in my apartment. And when he left, he happened to leave what he called his lucky drafting pants, and which were way bigger around the middle than I am was at that time. So after work at five o'clock, Dan was already there. So I go in my room and put them on. And I'm standing at the top of the steps down into the living room. And I hold these pants out and say, look, Dan, look at me. Look how much weight I've lost this week. And then something. Raw instinct grips. We freeze, turn our heads, both to north toward Elmendorf. Not jets, either. Atmospheric, intense, pervasive, deep, guttural, every place. Bypasses hearing, reaching, no, not really reaching, grabbing the body inside in the bones. 
intensity, telegraphs movement, coming closer like pressure, coming fast, transfix, Dan and I faced living room's windowless north wall, grinding oscillations broadened through throb frequencies hitting higher and lower ranges. Everything around vibrates in rhythmic renaissance. Overpowering. Dan cups hands around his mouth and starts yelling at me. And all I heard was standing on track, something like a locomotive coming. And violence just hit the room hard, shatters it. The upper wall we're looking at tilts away from us. The ground swims and swells underfoot. All of a sudden it dips and racks the walls as restraints, like a spatial parallelogram we were standing in. This vaulted living room over the ceiling room where it had beams we came close toward our heads and then rises quick back. Then <clears throat> shouting from my own terror, I said, Dan, I'm on my butt. I, I can't get up or get out. Floors fluid, defies solid earth. And loose heavyweight, lightweight, any weight objects are airborne and smashing. And falling off a high wall case, books bang discordant on my new piano keys. Dan screams, place has fallen, gotta crawl out for we get squished. Still hitching pants up with one hand and crawling on my fours behind Dan up steps into the entry, then out. God, carports, far edge where the posts are, is in hectic frenzies. The same cover moves as a house moves as we move under its sides attached length. Holding on to the outside wall, struggling for footholds to get away, we take off going opposite ways by foot, knees, and hands to spots that are out from under anything that might fall. I end up in O Street, sitting right smack in the middle of it and watch. Pavement moves from flat to not so flat. Ground surface rolls and heaves in sine waves like you study in school. You can see it with your eye. The suspended wires twirl between poles as jump ropes. Up O Street, cars parked along its curb march a conga line migration toward me. Dan leans on the house in frisk position, hands flat against the front, head facing down, legs spread apart. Probably good stick for sticking close to his rescue his car. It's a four-seater T-bird parked on the inclined driveway, and it kept walking itself backward down into 15th Avenue, and then it would come forward and walk back up where it was parked. The whatever this is, the something, shifts intensity through resonances, grinding deep down, passing by under onto south, diminishing as a fade to pianissimo. Dominant now is a frenetic squeaking symphony in tonal variation and key emanating from structured wood and steel astride grounds waves left in the wake. Collapses crashes cadence. A distance over east, L Street's 14th floor sway to moments tempo. Dogs barking, bird calls, horns, sirens, motors, engines. The cacophony, harmony, counter melody accompanying everyday life is at rest. No other chimes in. The last movement begins slowing in finale. Afterwards, breathless silence. 
Sudden and together shrieks, screams, voices burst forth close by and away. I joined them. Dan, do you think whatever that was is Frank's something big is about to happen? Mark Yerrington with Ralph Alley on Alley Audiovision. In our center segment, dear friends, Ralph and his homies Frank, Dan, and Dick assessed the damages, learned more about what has happened, and, along with the rest of Alaska, learn how to deal with it. I noticed, too, on the earthquake that was kind of a big one, nothing like the 64 that happened on November 30th, 2018, and I've noticed this on certain other larger quakes too that you do sort of feel a little bit of a rumble before it actually happens well with elmendorf out there there's always some at least in those days there was always uh some kind of roaring going on but you could tell the difference between that and jets it just was it was deeper and it moved through through your body and it was just an amazing feeling I think some people are more familiar with it than others, but that quake lasted for five and a half minutes. It must have just seemed like it was going to go on forever and it was never going to stop. Well, the you know, there's two parts to it. There's the resonant and there's the impact. And the impact was long, maybe a minute or so as it moved through and you could hear it and then it disappeared on south. But the resonant part of it where the buildings just shook 
it did seem like it just go on forever. And when I was sitting there in O Street, uh, Clark, you could just listen to buildings just falling. It was over here. It was over there. It was there. <laughs> it was kind of a crazy. You didn't know what was going to happen next if your own home was going to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I lived in that neighborhood, too, and remember going through a small earthquake or two there. I was only there for uh, a year or a little longer, but um, it seems like the land underlying that neighborhood is a little spongier or something, and so you get this sort of uh, sickening sway, you know, compared to if you're on, like, something that's more underlain with uh, more rock and gravel, it's a little uh, different experience. Well, after this quake, Dan called it an earthquake from hell. It was the first uh, kind of a title to it because uh, at that time I never thought about earthquakes really. And uh, I knew about them, of course, but I just didn't think it was anything like that, though I knew of San Francisco having a, a huge earthquake and that the build, the town had residual fires afterwards and, uh, and did a lot of damage. And Frank, <clears throat> I noticed about his face, it was flushed and red. And my face felt hot, it, like some disease had come over us or something. And he says, let's go in to the house and see what's come down. And we went in there and it was a mess. And he says, turn on the TV, find out what, what's going on and what this thing's about. Well, we didn't have TV. We didn't have lights. We didn't have radio. We had no, no power at all anywhere. And we didn't have water, no gas at the stove. No, it looked like probably the sewers were broken up too. And Dan said, what are we going to do about that? We've got to go to the bathroom. And I said, we'll just have to do it outside. But where do we do it in this neighborhood? And I remember being out in O Street, there was a house under construction up the block, up the hill. And there was a stack of plywood up there as other lumber. And we went up and bargained with that guy and got a few pieces of plywood and um, built a lean-to, but not right then, but next on the back of the house on the north side. I used to, when I was younger in Idaho, my father would take me fishing. We'd go on these kind of epic trips in the summertime. And he taught me how to go to the bathroom outside when you didn't have a nice cozy toilet. And... I knew all of the ins and outs of that and about the lime and the holes and everything <laughs> and, and how to put your garbage in them. And so I had kind of practical experience that a lot of the people didn't have uh, about being in the outdoors and on your own without utilities. So what Dan and I started doing was picking up all the glass and everything because it was, well, the quake happened at a little after 5.30 and, and we had just, uh, well, we get into it, but uh, that's at that time and the vernal equinox, you have 12 hours of daylight, residual light in the sky thereafter. But after that, it's pitch black and it's cold as could be that March. Hmm. Yeah, I was wondering about that, if it was uh, warm enough so that uh, not having heat in your house uh, would, uh, you know, not be horrible. But inside was always colder than out. Yeah, isn't I don't that know weird? Why? I noticed that too. Like I'm walking through uh, places that are under construction in the winter, it seems like it's fine yes. until you get in 
inside and then you're just you know freezing well we you know try to cope with the food in the refrigerator and how to keep the dogs and cats away from it and, and candles and the gals would always bring candles for dinners and we had candles at least and we never thought about having anything like that but anyway we were going through all of this trying to do things and there was this loud banging on the front door the front door had the upper part of it had uh, glass and it had muttons in it that were at diagonals like diamond shapes and I could see a new guy from the office named Dick Mayo who later had a practice in uh, Anchorage who designed the Tionic buildings he was partnered with Don Coolidge who's an older architect there and later with Bill Manley after uh, they uh, he split with Mayer and Dick was there on the door and he was out of breath. He'd been running maybe blocks. And uh, he was a kind of guy built like Frankenstein. He's big bone, lumbering type, pipe smoking, slow moving. <laughs> and he came over there. His eyes were just bugging out. He says, you know what's happened? He's, he's, his voice is very deep like this. And it was like this, talking real high. He said, you can't believe what's happened. And Dad and I both looked at him and says, well, what? As these places downtown have fallen, streets on fourth have caved in maybe five feet or more. He says, my, my room in the boarding house uh, back of the Denali, the house has slid down the hill and it's kind of at an angle. And uh, I, I said, can you get anything out of it? And he says, nope. And my van's in the parking lot out there. He's got, I've got stuff in there too, but half of it's hanging over a cliff now, a new cliff. And he says, that was a parking lot. He said, that Denali Theater's marquee, the top of it's at street level, and the office building, which front of our office building is concrete, he says, it's cracked all to hell. And catty corner J.C. Penny shed onto streets and sidewalks those new tall precast panels around upper floors. And that seven-story yellow hill building, at seven, he was talking in one long street, seventh is at 45 degree from where it was. Saw store window glass bend way out and not break, and a lot shattered, a lot shards all over sidewalks and streets. You know, I heard one time that uh, glass is one of the most uh, flexible elements uh, of anything, and that it can, like, you know, get way out of whack and not uh, crack. It's almost like turns into a fluid or something. It is fluid. I, I, I mean, there are a lot of things that you think are solid that are so flexible, like solid earth. Every time people talk about solid earth, I think of the looking at those visual sine waves as that tremendous force move the surface of the earth. And you study at uh, Clark, you know, when you're in college, but you'd never think that you'd ever see it. Anyway, as we were all talking and Dick was emoting about downtown excited, there was this other voice says, who left the front door open? And it was Frank. And he had also come in on foot from downtown. So I introduced Dick to Frank and told him who he was. And uh, Frank was all business. He didn't even acknowledge that. And he said, uh, Files building where we lived less than a month ago fell apart. Hofbrau collapsed. He just switched like that from shouting to very calm like he can get. And he says, today is March 27th, barely after the vernal equinox. And day's sun, he starts getting his 12 hours deal. And, it's been more than an hour since a quake. We've little light left for doing things we need. I told Frank that he just interrupted Dan and I from getting things done. And Dick 
started frowning. He says, can I stay here with you guys and help? I haven't anything, not even a place to live. Frank sometimes always rises to these occasions and in his magnanimity, what's ahead for survival is hard work and any help Dick is welcome. That is so Frank. So anyway, we, he told about us being out Dan and I and himself being out in the wilderness in July and we had nothing and we survived it and he says but we've no time talking boys let's get on to work check the fireplace see if it's safe get some firewood in the house and prepare for the night and he just giving us orders and here we were already trying to figure out how to work how to live and we we worked but it just Clark got so dark once that sun goes down, it was just pitch black and cold. We couldn't see. I, I mean, there were no street lights. There's no residual light anywhere. And Frank just finally says, you know, this is futile. He says, um, let's do something for now. And he says, thank God the fireplace works. And he said, the house is freezing, colder in here than it is outside. And oh, Dan, as usual, are you saying, Frank, you're, we're staying outdoors? He says, count me out. That's the way Dan is about anything Frank suggests. And he says, I'm thinking along those lines, but another way. There are apartment buildings on the bluff above Westchester Creek, and that's uh, Clark's the Hillside Apartments in those days. And he says, from what I've seen, the city bluffs failed. We could put on our parkas, hike over, stay outside, and maybe find people who need help. Dan proposes this. How about finding me some dinner? <laughs> well, we ended up... We ended up at the hillside apartments, and when we got there, it had broken. Uh, the cliff had given away. There were dwellers who lived in that apartment, and, and remember Chuck in the office who uh, was married to the choral director. He, he since had died, but he lived there in an apartment before he married. And the dwellers in that were all out in the streets, sitting on blankets and. Uh, some had chairs, but uh, didn't know what to do, where to go. So that was a building that was at uh, about uh, 16th and G Street vicinity, and it was like maybe three or four stories tall out of concrete block. And when it failed, the when it failed, the walls were like all disconnected, and so like what was formerly a vertical wall was in several pieces, and the different pieces had shifted. It hung right on the bluff looking down to Westchester Flats. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, I'm sure it's the same place. There's a building there today, but like kind of a, a lower one. It was green, the building, painted kind of a bad green, I always thought, and it had the steel windows in it. Right, yeah, that's the one, and it hadn't been built like too many years before 64, I think. The one thing I noticed inside when I... Uh, is that the ceilings were very high, which was unusual for the architecture in those days. Eight feet was seemed to be everyone's idea of how high ceilings should be, no matter what the building was. But yeah. it could have easily been 10 feet. But anyway, there were people out in the street there. I don't know, is that 16th, 17th Street up there? It's beyond 15th to the south. Yeah, I think 16th is the top of the bluff, and 17th is a street that uh, goes crossways at the bottom of the hill, like where that where the, swimming pool building used to be. The natatorium. Right. Anyway, the people, uh, we talked to some of them, and some of them ventured to talk to us, and they had medicine, they had pets, they wanted their doors locked. So the four of us would go into their apartments, find them when we could, 
and, and get their pets, get their medicine out of the medicine chest, lock their doors, bring them blankets. And they were so grateful. And we had, we had so many people saying, we're our, God blessing us and uh, we're going to have our place in the stars. For something. It was amazing how grateful they were. <laughs> so you'll probably get to this, but um, what about aftershocks? Like when did the first one come along after the first, after the big quake? It was at noon the following week, and it does come up pretty quick. Uh, why don't we just go on and get to what happened after? Sure. Uh, so anyway, after that episode, we walked back to the house. Pitch black, you can't see anything. Cops were around there with speakers on their cars telling us to evacuate, and we had to get out of there. And uh, Frank and Dick, Dan and I were walking side by side, and the cops stopped us. And he says, you guys live around here? And, and the cop says, uh, which house? And says, the one on the corner at O. He says, have you any identification? Uh, the city is under martial law. And uh, we're looking for looters and looting. And say no more, my man. Here's my ID. I don't know who these other people are. Haven't uh, a clue who they should be. And the cop says, you are messing with me. I saw you guys talking. I am. My roommate's here. Do you know what happened? We don't. And he says it was an earthquake by register in the Richter Nines. Epicenter is in Prince William's College Fjords. People killed in town at Penny's. Homes like Atwood's, Rasmussen's, Hines, out in the Turnigan by the Sea Bluffs fell into the inlet uh, when it, the bluffs caved in. And uh, not just there, Valdez Seward Bays emptied, came back in huge waves carrying boxcars and boats high on the mountainside. Think towns are wiped out, may affect outside. That's all I got. Watch for flyers on your door where to get food, water, city help with sanitation. Everyone must have typhoid shots. That's being organized tonight. Dan was listening to all this with that impervious stare and erupts. Holy smokes! You sure what you're saying just ain't tales? All we got are first-hand observations through ham radio reports. We've been cross-checked with one another. It's too early for scientist, geologist, and engineer verification. We're going with what we got. Tidal waves still are going on. A tsunami has been detected coming up the cook. We'll flood here. Fellows, we can't stand chat. You must leave for high ground. If you don't leave, I'll make a rest, force you out. Even the lawyer here, uh, stay <coughs> better the chance being a casualty. I elected myself as a driver because I wanted to save my convertible. And I said, well, how about the roads? Uh, can you get to higher areas? Are they broken up? Since you have to work your way around for routes. Been done and doable. Uh, take extra care watching, go slow. Warning and detour signs are being out, put out right now. So anyway, pitch black, very cold. You have the deed to go in and get the things that you want to keep for the rest of your life and save it from a tidal wave. And I will say this, once I got in there, the one thing I needed more than anything in the world at that moment were blankets and coats. Nothing else mattered but warmth. And I closed the door and that little voice that goes on in my head says, screw it, your stuff isn't that much anyway. So. <laughs> anyway, we got in the car, the four of us. Frank was in back and he says, where are you driving us, Ralph? I says, anywhere above goddamn sea level, Frank. All of a sudden, the car stopped. I can't get it started. 
and there isn't any gas, it's empty. And Frank in the back seat says, at least we won't fall thousands of feet just to be here. <laughs> so Dad, I asked, does your car have gas in it? And he says, yeah, filled it up this morning. He says, it's rare to go. And I won't say anything about keeping the gas tank full in cars, Ralph, for any emergency. So anyway, we get in the car. Frank in the back seat still says, oh, where are you taking us, Dan? And Dan mocks me and he says, I think we're going above goddamn sea level, Frank. And so I finally remembered Duluth, who lived, uh, remember, he was a contractor for the Brits. I thought of him at Airport Heights. We went out there. We had dinner. They had water. They had, elect they had a generator. And they put beds together for us on the floor in the living room on the carpet. <clears throat> and it was such a fabulous thing to have that happen. It was the first heat we'd had for hours. And Jean, of course, was a wonderful cook. The one thing that Frank wanted was a drink of water <laughs> more than anything. <laughs> I remember that. But we were lying on the carpet on a concrete over a concrete slab and the floor continually quivered that night and it suddenly would jolt and and wake us up we'd be sitting straight up and then we'd go back down and quiver and finally we just kind of fell asleep from the weariness i guess and it was a great healing sound sleep all electricians and plumbers of Fort Rich go to building 700 immediately. Howard Forbes would like it be known that he will be at Mike Whitmore's. A message to Kenneth Sadler. Mrs. Sadler is fine. Kenneth Sadler is out in the bush and listens on a transistor radio. Mrs. Sadler is fine. A message to Walter Hart at Kenai. A message to Walter Hart at Kenai. Lee Hart is fine. Jim Murphy and Bill Somerville at Point Hope. Your families are A-OK. -okay. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. R.W. Fisher have uh, lost their children. They can't find them. Mr. and Mrs. Fisher are at the home of Charles Ball. Mr. and Mrs. Fisher are at R.W. Fisher are at the home of Charles Ball. They have lost their children. Boy Scout troop that went overnight to McCute Creek left at four o'clock yesterday. Due back today, we need are uh, due back tomorrow. Uh, Bill Noble would like to get a message, if at all possible, as to their whereabouts and if they are all right. In the third part of this episode, after regenerating at the Luth's house. Ralph and his renegade friends get back to their own house and the finer points of rationing and honey buckets. Ralph enjoys a calm, quiet Easter reflecting on recent events until an aftershock rolls through. We touch on local soil conditions, building technology, and risk factors. And in closing, Ralph talks about the legacy of the quake and how it has remained a curiosity into the present day. I remember after the November 30th, 2018 earthquake and the aftershocks started coming through, it seemed like about a day after that, it was uh, unusually warm. And I was looking out the back door at the backyard and everything was melting down, you know, and uh, and there was still aftershocks rolling through periodically. And I was just like, it, it was definitely a low point, you know. I'm thinking, wow, this place sucks. Why do I still live here? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get out of here somewhere else, you know, but I think every place has its own brand of natural disaster. Well, yes, and California's always being harassed 
You know, we have fires and riots in California, no matter where you are, and earthquakes, plus that. But we were awakened, the loose were cooking breakfast, and we had hot showers, and gosh, it just seemed to turn everything around for us, and we headed town. We were allowed into the neighborhood, and we started putting the house back together. There was no water damage. I guess the uh, tidal waves kind of fizzled out somewhere in the inlet. My jungle room was intact, all my drawings in there, and my size of pants... <laughs> They were in the closet and I shed those things. I got so tired of holding up Salvi's back. And I still have those in my closet, by the way, just for to remember. I told Salvi before he died I still had those pants if he wanted them back. <laughs> he should have given you some suspenders. <laughs> yes. But it's nice that the sun came up and the windows, the south windows got the house warm enough where we could work inside. And Dan and I built the lean-to outside and we figured out the refrigeration and, and all of that. And the first flyer was put on our door. It told us where we could get water. Each person was allotted so much. So each of us, all of us went there and we each got our allotment. And then when we got back, there was a second flyer about grocery stores where we could get they rationed everything where we could get food. We all get our allotments. We tried to just get a, some semblance of life back. We found charcoal bags and lime for the, for the waste pits. And when we got back from the grocery store, the three gals that we go with were at the house and their place was wrecked. And the, I guess the frou-frou house didn't matter to them. They moved in and we built a fire and stoked the grill and the gals cooked dinner and then a door knocked and one of Frank's friends who was homeless all of a sudden named Foot was his nickname. So we had eight people staying in that house. I can remember we had three sleeping bags between Dan and me. The gals brought sleeping bags, two beds and one bedroom and the jungle room had bunks. And so the five gay, I mean, this was how it was negotiated. Five guys slept in the back of the house in cold and the three gals slept in front of a fireplace warm. And that was the way it was going to be. And that was it. And I will remember, I woke up in the night shivering under blankets and coats. So I get up. Well, maybe it's early morning. I put on clothes. Oh, I went back to bed and that didn't work. And by the time I got out of bed again and was so cold, I went outdoors and it was early morning. There weren't any cars anywhere. And uh, I was standing in 15th, savoring fresh dawn over snow. It's too chilly for Easter, but it fit everything. There's no flowers, chocolate, or colored eggs. Can go on. There was no running water, no gas, no power, and no toilet. Instead, we have a makeshift outhouse that we grit our teeth to use. Without notice, the ground underfoot does hard shaking. Strong sword smells rise along with morning sunrise. Happy Easter. So I go in and I get water to boil, which is very slow, over a charcoal grill. And all the coffee drinkers ran in and raided the first batch. That moment, just looking at everybody, everybody needs hot water for everyone else's sake, like washing ourselves. This situation really demanded our personal best. This scene's humanity looks gruesome. Those inoculated with caffeine must have eyes enough open and see the fright, but continue acting not to care. And the one conclusion I got from this <laughs> was... I immediately rejected that this was what marriage must look like before breakfast. <laughs> and again today, back to forging for uh, allotted water and food, basic living uh, needs were whittled away. All our productive hours took 
just to survive, just to do the essentials. I remember seeing a photo of a woman out in uh, Turnigan, and she was um, oh so called uh, kicking the bucket. She had a she had a bucket that she was like uh, throwing across her front yard or something like that. And the occasion was like the, the uh, sewer line had finally been fixed and uh, the plumbing is all reconnected. And it was like two and a half months after the earthquake, something like that. Did it take that long at your house to restore that service? Well, it was. Uh, I could get into this, and uh, maybe we don't need to, but. Uh, you know, they kept putting flyers uh, uh, up. The city worked very hard to try to get people uh, to have certain essentials for uh, living. And one of the things they did, they started this honey bucket service. I can't remember all the particulars of it, but we also had buckets, <laughs> if something like to the equivalent thereof, that we had to uh, put our waste in and it was collected. Was that the bucket she was throwing? Yeah, probably. I was too young to remember any of this stuff uh, happening. It seems like um, people got it together pretty quickly, huh? Well, you have to. You know, you get used to all the wonderful civilized advantages and when you don't have them, everything at once, you, you really feel desperate. That's twice that year I've been there. There probably were people who decided they didn't want to live there anymore. The feeling that yes. I alluded to earlier, but it seemed like that didn't last very long, you know, and it soon gave way to, uh, well, we're going to like uh, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and fix this and it'll be okay moving forward. The next people that came to the door banging were Verge and Joy, who I did the six-sided house for. They finally got down the hill. She has a mother there who they were worried about. They couldn't communicate with her, but she told me that Joe Jackson, who designed the structure for their house, was uh, had already been up there, and he got special dispensation somehow to come come to Anchorage, check over his jobs, and the first place he went was up there. He said that that house he wanted to check first because out of all the Alaska projects and all the buildings he knew up here, that that star-shaped beam design is the only three-dimensionally laterally braced structure that's been through such a quake. And he was thrilled to see it hadn't moved an inch. That's great. Yeah, it must have been on some uh, some good land or and or it was just a well-conceived uh, structure and they didn't cut any corners in building it, huh? Well, whatever happened, it certainly turned in my favor, regardless of the other ancillary good luck environment that may have been uh, surrounding it. But I ex explained to her that I understood what it meant and I actually was very happy to hear that it hadn't collapsed. I had an experience like that too after the November 30th uh, 2018 quake I found myself thinking about this house that I'd designed that had been uh, the people had been living there for about a year and a half up on um, Rabbit Creek Road fairly high up there. It uh, rode it out pretty well too. It was an unusual structure, kind of large and irregular, and um, not a not a crack. It looked out well. I think the downtown area along the inlet there had the worst damage. It's clay underneath, an infinite depth of blue clay, and it liquefies when it shakes. And of course, it was shaken for over five minutes, and that's uh, a lot of the problems that uh, we'll get into next time and the uh, reconstruction of Anchorage. That, uh, uh, even as uh, Airport Heights, still wasn't as damaged as where we left from downtown. It really wiped out the utilities, I think, in, in the uh, area next to the inlet.
Yeah, well, I look forward to hearing about the rebuilding process, and um, that was probably good for architects and engineers, right? A lot, a lot of work oh, to do. Oh. <laughs> well, more than you could I've keep got up to with. I tell you, it was certainly good for me. I uh, people ask me how I got started in architecture, and you know some of the story. But I tell you that not everybody had a client like uh, Virgin Joy. Uh, at 23 and got their first house up and, and uh, got a lot, arch, had architecture there where they became known and went through an earthquake that toppled the town. I said it was just almost like a divine providence or something as far as my career was concerned. Yeah, you were in the right place at the right time. What a thing to, what a thing to go through, huh? Well, when people find out that I've lived in Alaska, even today, and it's what, 55 or some years later, 56? That's the first thing they want to know about is the earthquake. It certainly has had an impact upon people's psyche. I I know that people go through earthquakes all the time, but the one in Anchorage, I guess, was one of the worst, and, and the pictures of its devastation must have been quite a visual for um, newspapers and television back in those days that still linger. I think it was... Also, you, you could probably speak to this better than I could, but it um, it was a vindication of um, building codes. You know, I'm sure everything got a lot more um, strict and stringent after that. It's good that it did, but it was already probably pretty reasonable in that uh, was the largest um, earthquake ever recorded in North America. And I think there were only like um, maybe a 10 or 12 deaths associated with it. If something like that happened um, someplace in the third world, you know, Mexico or uh, Haiti or someplace like that, there'd be like um, tens of thousands of deaths. Oh, I've I've ridden in from the airport to downtown Mexico City, and the hills are just covered with the equivalent of cardboard box uh, or wood crate houses. I, it, it's so sad. I, I I wish you could heal the world and help things like that. Uh, yes, I could see how that had happened, but uh, earthquake, especially earthquake construction really became more stringent right after that quake, even here in California. And when I had to be tested for um, registration here, uh, when I started my firm in, in tandem with Anchorage in Los Angeles, that was one of the first things at the interview that they got on to was earthquake and asking if I knew anything about it. <laughs> I knew quite a bit about it. <laughs> I think they were surprised. <laughs> Yep, you had that one covered. Okay, well, I think we're out of time for this episode already. Seems like it passed rather quickly. I hope I didn't do too much talking. <laughs> nope, just the right amount. Well, I enjoyed hearing about that, Ralph, and I look forward to hearing more about the reconstruction in the next episode. Well, there's plenty more to come.
Golf Alley's website, artechdivisions.com. You can find examples of his drawings and designs. My website is frame-ak.com. Ralph is working on a biography of his career, including the time in Alaska. You have been listening to Alley Audio Vision, episode 11, recorded October 2nd, 2020. More episodes on the way. So long, dear friends.